Welcome, friends. This is Historical AF. I'm Kina. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. We are two history podcasts delivering the weird and historical puppy nuggets you never needed in your ear holes. And now that I've said puppy nuggets, I instantly regret it. But thanks for joining me again. Puppy nuggets could be like baby puppies or they can okay. be puppy poops. Either one. I was thinking like eating and then I was like, oh no. Oh yeah. See, I didn't go that way. Oh, I went terrible places. I called this like... one a nugget before. <laughs> I love pugs so much. She's like asleep. Like, mom, why are you picking me up? Mine's on the floor asleep. She'll start snoring here in a little bit. It's a little ambiance for the background noise for you guys. It'll it'll be like stereo because yours will do it and then mine will do it and it'll be great. It's super authentic. We have a bunch of dogs on the dog podcast. Like, yes, absolutely. This is real. (laughs) Method podcasting. Yeah. Yes. Getting into character. Well, I'm so glad you guys joined me again. I had so much fun last time you guys were here. And just refresh everybody's memory about your podcast. So we are Winding About Herstory, women's history podcast where we pair fine wine with fine ladies from history that you probably haven't heard of. So we're not going to be covering Amelia Earhart or Marie Curie. We're covering people like Marsha P. Johnson, Pudgy Stockton. If you don't recognize any of those names, then our podcast is for you because they will become like your dream girls. <laughs> or if oh. you just like best friends and badass babes, we'd probably be for you too. Yes. Hell, yes. If I didn't already listen, I'd be subscribing now. <laughs> <laughs> Done. I love Marsha P. Johnson so much. Oh my She's God. Amazing. Hers made me cry. Yeah. And then I, I went to a pride parade like the same summer that I covered her and someone had a sign with her face on it. And I straight up started crying. I was like, Marsha, you deserve so much better. Yeah. <laughs> there was a study that came out that said that there was a 60% increase in LGBTQ plus people and people are like losing their minds. But all I could think of is like, we finally live in a time in history where people are comfortable being their authentic That's what, that's what it is. Yeah. 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 And just think back to like Marsha P. Johnson, like how horrific she was treated and how people were so scared. And Stonewall in general, like everybody there was, you know, there in secret. And I just, it makes my heart happy to know that today that, you know, kids in high school are coming out. And that never mm-hmm. happened when I was in high school. I'm like, right. It, it's I not agree. like more gay people. That's what was killing me about the comments and the people retweeting being like, what is happening? I'm like, no, it just means that we're finally evolving as a society to be more accepting. Well, it's like, you know what's happening? We're not being a bunch of assholes. <laughs> like that's come out with mental health too, that people are like, oh, people are getting diagnosed more. I'm like, no, people are seeking help more. <laughs> yeah. The stigma is finally, I mean, there's still such a stigma and Like, even in the tweet that I did, it's like, people are still being disowned and beaten in the streets. Like, that's still happening. And it's horrific. But at least we live in a time where people are more accepting, I think. You know, because now you see, like, Twitter handles, everybody has their pronouns. And that would have never happened even, like, five years ago, I think. So, I'm just very proud of humans right now. (laughs) Because a little, little, like, ray of sunshine peeking through the shitty clouds. I was going to say, we need to, like, hang on to good news like that for dear life. (laughs) Yeah. All I could think of, because I ran a teen center, and I just remembered thinking one time, like, how comfortable some of the teens were just being out. And I'm like, this would have never happened when I was a kid. And it just warms my little cold heart. It's so good. It really is so good to see. (laughs) 
hopefully maybe the next generation like nobody will have to be afraid and just makes me happy well and that's the cool thing it's gonna just get better you know Mm -hmm. the more people who are out the more you can't ignore them you know the harder it is to force Mm -hmm. them into hiding which is why we have this idea that lgbtq plus people are like a new invention or a trend or something stupid like that they've literally always been here we just will not talk about them and society kind of did their best to force them underground or straight up eliminate them from society and now people are out they're proud we have such a long way to go but we've come a Mm -hmm. huge amount of distance also i love that dion wrote that they have their pronouns in their email signatures at work and i'm like that's amazing i love that yeah that's incredible so I also know that APA writing guide added they as yep. a non-gender identifier. And I was like, well, that is amazing. So anyway, puppies. Yeah. <laughs> Puppers. Puppers. So tell me about your fur babies. I was going to say, I'll let Kelly go first because she has the, the visual aids on hand. <laughs> <laughs> I have three pugs. This is my youngest. She's half asleep and probably mad at me right now. Puppies. <laughs> This is Navi. She's an apricot pug. And she's like four. And then we have Dory, who's a fawn pug. Little chunky one. Not like as chunky as like, if you think of a normal pug and they're like little barrels, none of my dogs look like that. But Dory's our middle child who she was a crack dog when we first got her. Because she was rescued from a no, like a outside a known crack house, so she was a little insane for like the first two years that we had her. But she's Aww. she's a really good dog now. She didn't stop moving. Yeah, like literally, her her rest period was like she would sit down for like literally thirty seconds and then just be Aww. on the move again. A she poor baby. Outside Emily's door. Yeah, she was a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and then when she like mastered going outside. She would go outside of Emily's window. (laughs) Because my room was kind of like in the ground. So my window was level with the ground. And yeah, she'd shit outside my window and my door because fuck her. (laughs) I love her, but Jesus. And then our oldest is a black pug named Atari who is 14. Oh, I I love the names too. Dory short for Commodore. Not, oh, that's incredible. Not Dory the fish, although she acts like Dory the fish. Um, <laughs> so my husband's a nerd. So Atari is obviously after the Atari video yeah. game. Dory is Commodore after the Commodore 64, which was like one of the first computers. Oh, yeah. And then Navi is after Navi from Legend of Zelda. I love that so much. And so she's she- totally Navi because she'll bark. She'll be like, hey, listen. listen. She used to have the collar that said, hey, listen on it. But then she got old. <laughs> Look at that face. Yeah, they're my babies. I have no children. I have dogs. <laughs> Same. <laughs> okay. I went to grab one chi. Yeah, two chis. And I ended up with two chis. <gasps> oh, <laughs> I grabbed Atari and then Dory was all up here like, Mom, love me instead. This little guy is Charlie. He's the first dog I've ever had. I was always a cat person. But I loved him, and Kelly was allergic to cats, so I had to get a dog. And then this little this little squirrely dude is Max. My boyfriend's parents had a couple of dogs, one, the, Buddy and Max. 
Buddy sadly passed away and Max has been feeling real lonely. So he's been kind of staying with us. It may be a permanent situation because I fucking love him and I don't want him to leave and I want to be his mommy. But we don't want to like just be like, he's our dog now. No takesy backsies. Maybe it'll wait like six months to do that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm just kind of waiting to get him neutered because he still has his balls. And then I do have a pit bull who's in the other room and he's too big to fit in my lap. Not that he knows that, but <laughs> so I got, I got two cheese and a pity. Oh, I just love them so much. This has been such a theme just because I'm such a shameless dog mom. Right. <laughs> Obsessed with too. them. I love all things dogs. Did you guys want to go first? Do you want me to go first? We can certainly go first. I'm very excited about my topic. <laughs> I don't know why I'm saying mine. It, it's because it, I think it's because my boyfriend suggested it. So I've been like obsessing about it for a month. <laughs> Emily just doesn't want me to be here. She just she was like, I guess Shakelly has to come with me. I need so I need someone to say I'm funny. <laughs> is that is that what my eye rolls tell you? <laughs> that you're funny? No, it's that you don't laugh at me. You say, "Oh, you're funny." <laughs> You're like, oh, that's so funny, but you don't laugh at me. And then when I can get you to laugh, it's like, it is crack. Like, it's the best thing in the world. Like, oh, I got Kelly to laugh. Oh, funny. How long have you guys known each other? It's been like, oh, God. Forever, we right? met in 2009, freshman year of college. Yeah. Oh, wow. So over, over 10 years now, Oh, that, which that's, is insane. That's what I was about yeah. to say. That's just wrong. That, that's like a decade away. Right. Oh, I refuse to admit that I'm old. Our last episode, actually, on Monday, we talk about how it's our birthdays and we're entering a new decade and it's sad and depressing. <laughs> yeah, my birthday was in December, but now I'm officially closer to 40 than 30. And I'm like, uh-oh. Yeah, this is too much. <laughs> I just hit 30 this last Sunday. And to celebrate tomorrow, I'm going to the zoo and I'm going to act like a five-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I love the zoo. And behalf of, on behalf of everybody, happy birthday again. I know. Oh, thank Yay. you. Let's do this. So today, for all of your listening pleasures, we are covering Mercy Dogs. Oh, I'm so excited. Dogs have served in battle as early as 600 BC, as far as we know, probably earlier. Yeah, probably as soon as they were domesticated, people were like, attack! <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were either fighting dogs or fighting with dogs, but dogs are warriors, especially my cheese who are getting into it right now. <laughs> my dogs are not warriors. Yeah, <laughs> my never forgot. Your dogs are tanks. Mine are rogues. <laughs> So battle borks have done just about everything from serving in combat roles to acting as scouts. But today, we're not jumping into battle. We're going to talk about dogs that played a critical role after the battle was over. Imagine, if you will, you're a soldier serving in World War I, or as you know it, the Great War. Because what are the chances of something like this happening twice? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Those poor, blissfully ignorant fools. Right. <laughs> I know, especially because the first one they called War to End All, end wars, all wars. And then they're like, well, like, shit. Oh, it's only. Yeah. yeah. Trench warfare, which was very typical for World War One, is hell. When you're in the trench, you're plagued by lice, disease, and the ever-present threat of attack or mental breakdown. When you're ordered to go over the top of the trench, you're charging into a barrage of artillery fire, bullets, gas, and landmines, or the worst of the worst sniper fire. 
So in World War I, the trench soldiers likely thanked whatever remained of their lucky stars for the lethal weapon-like terriers, which used to slay endless rivers of rats they were forced to live with. Beyond all the praises spoken of terriers for controlling rats in the trenches, when it comes to a favorite role that canines played during the Great War, my vote goes hands down to what was known as the casualty dogs or mercy dogs. So let's say you managed to miss all the artillery fire and the bullets and the gas and the landmines and the snipers. But let's say you get hit by a piece of shrapnel from a mortar that goes off somewhere nearby. Now you're face down in the mud, trapped in no man's land, unable to move, but still alive. You don't know how long you've been lying there, but the pain in your side is immense. You hear the distant groans of the wounded and dying around you. Then a new sound, far off at first but growing louder quickly, panting. Suddenly, a dog fitted with a white saddlebag decorated with a large red cross approaches. The saddlebag is filled with all the battlefield necessities, first aid, water, and liquor, because God knows you need some liquor. Plus, you know, it sanitizes stuff if you have your wits about you. You're able to use the first aid supplies to bandage the wound on your stomach, and this will buy you time until medics can help you get back to your trench. You will survive the war, live to tell your grandkids about it, and the daring doggo that saved your life. Oh, I got chills. So who were these courageous canines? Mercy dogs, also known as ambulance dogs, Red Cross dogs, or casualty dogs. They were specifically trained to canvas battlefields after combat searching for wounded soldiers in need of aid. Before being sent into the battlefields, the dogs were trained under realistic battle conditions. After a few weeks of training, they were ready to serve their country. They knew which soldiers to help by the type of uniform they wore. Like wow. they would straight up discriminate against you yeah. if they, they were like, no, you're not one of my guys. Fuck wow. yourself. <laughs> So in wartime, these dogs would test the air, or air scenting as they called it, for traces of living human scent. And once these canines latched onto that scent and tracked it to an injured soldier or some poor soldier who'd managed to conceal himself or lay wounded in some obscure point of the battlefield, they would not let go of that scent. They were normally sent out at night into no man's land, which was, for anyone who doesn't know, the ground between the two opposing trenches. So this is like where all the shit went down when the battles were not raging to locate the injured men. Their keen sense of smell and good night vision gave them the advantage of finding soldiers in the dark without bringing much attention from the enemy. And as we mentioned before, if the the soldier they found was severely wounded, they were often, not always equipped with a saddlebag, that had these supplies that the wounded soldier could hopefully help themselves. Now, what if these heroic pooches found someone who was alive but unable to help themselves? You know, a lot of bad things go down in war, and you could be alive but completely out of it. Not to worry. These genius dogs would take a piece of the soldier's uniform, like a helmet or a belt, and bring it back to a paramedic that was back at their home trench, and then lead them to the wounded soldier. Sometimes they would carry their own leashes in their mouths to indicate that they had found someone who needed help. Because a lot of these dogs were trained in different ways, and they had different calls and signs. A rescue party would then trail the dog back to the wounded soldier, and the time saved in locating the injured often meant the difference between life and death, especially in locations far too difficult for a search party of humans to pinpoint. Because a lot of these soldiers, if you're wounded, you don't want to be out in the middle of nowhere, so they would hide in, you know, under rocks or behind trees, like 
they would conceal themselves to not be spotted by the enemy. Well, it also makes it really hard for your side to find you if you're dying. Yeah. It's not like you can yell for help or anything either. Right. Right. You don't know who's going to show up. Wow. Many different breeds were used as mercy dogs or Red Cross dogs, including German Shepherds, Sheepdogs, Arendelle Terriers, Bloodhounds, Retrievers, and Collies. Boxers were often used due to their loyalty. According to the Red Cross, it was more about the character of the dog, not the breed itself. And the dogs knew to help only those who were still alive. They were taught to distinguish between the dead and the unconscious. If a soldier was dead, the dog would move on. If the soldier was dying, the dog would remain and with him to offer him comfort so that he would not die alone. Oh my god, my heart. I'm not crying, you're crying. I'm fine. <laughs> Can, can you imagine, like, I think if I was going into war and I knew if I died, a dog would be with me, I'd be a lot... I'd be a little bit more okay with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As that comfort, you just can't... There's just... I mean, even if it was, like, a loved one, if I knew that he died with a comfort with... With your little puppers. Right. These dogs were so good at triaging wounded soldiers that one military surgeon said, quote, they sometimes led us to the bodies we think have no life in them. But when we bring them back to the doctors, they always find a spark. It is purely a matter of their instinct, which is far more effective than man's reasoning powers. So people who are dying and would have otherwise been left to do so were saved because of these dogs. Wow. I mean, can you imagine being injured on the battlefield and while still alive, your own comrades think you're dead and move on? That is hell. So thank God for these dogs. Yeah. In certain cases, dogs would even drag soldiers away from the danger and acted as furry little ambulances, pulling carts to help transport the wounded. They're like little fuzzy workhorses. <laughs> oh, that's cute. Babies. <laughs> so Mercy Dogs first became utilized by the German army in the late 1800s, and they were actually originally called... Why did I put German in here? <laughs> I literally called... did not put that in no, here when I first wrote the notes because I was not going to pronounce it. They were originally called san Sanitationed or Sanitary Hounds, and they started as what was known as, quote-unquote, a novel experiment, but became a worldwide phenomenon. Oh, wow. So they would typically be trained by the nation's Red Cross Society, and these woofers were so damn good, they could actually differentiate between their nation's soldiers and those of the enemy, kind of like we said before. Yes, the fearless floofs would totally blow you off if you weren't on their side, as well as be able to tell if a man was unconscious or dead. The difference between moving on and staying. Like... People can't even do this. Like, we've yeah. already established they're doing a better job than people. And the fact that a dog can tell between, like, a German soldier and a French soldier blows my mind. Because if right. you told me to t figure out which one was which, I unless, like, the Germans have the little spiky helmets, I probably couldn't tell you. <laughs> That's all I know about German military uniforms oh, from this so era. Funny. They all had horns. <laughs> Mercy dogs are most commonly associated with their services in World War I. Germany, who had started the war woofer trend, used approximately 30,000 dogs during World War I. Wow. And this is an insane number, considering it's estimated that 50,000 plus were used during the war in total. So that means Germany was using about over half of the dogs total used in this war. That is insane. Um, of these dogs, about 10,000 are estimated to have been mercy dogs, and these dogs are credited with saving 
thousands of lives. That's incredible. While Mercy Dogs are best known for serving in World War I, they were also utilized in World War II, and the United States used them in the Korean War, and they mainly use you know, German Shepherds, which are pretty standard for like police and military dogs. Mm-hmm. Even off the battlefield, these dogs continue to help those who need them. There is a growing list of organizations that pairs veterans with therapy dogs. From helping veterans with visible disabilities to helping those with mental trauma, these patriotic puppers, battle-tested booper snoots, daring doggos, and warrior woofers all deserve some heckin' sweet snuggles and salutes. Here, here. And actually, my boyfriend, his dog is not like a trained therapy dog, but an emotional support animal. And there was a period in our lives where he could, the dog, Rocky, couldn't be with us. And it, like, you could tell oh, the yeah, difference. Yeah. Like, they make such an impact. Yes, oh, they yeah. do, you whiny little chi. Yes, they <laughs> do. <laughs> oh, yeah. Zeke says all the time that Ruger saved his life because mm-hmm. Zeke, in 15 years of service he deployed 11 times oh wow yeah and the iraq ones were really bad so you know having ruger really it's just they can tell too like even if he starts to get kind of like like ruger immediately knows and he's extra cute and cuddly and calms him down and that's they're incredible like they're too pure for this world like i don't think we deserve dogs (laughs) they're just too good So Kelly was kind enough to include a story about a specific Mercy dog who is a little smaller than you might think, and this dog is Rags. One such Mercy dog was named Rags, a stray terrier from the streets of Paris. American soldiers fed him, and Rags, in return, followed them back to their camp where he was promptly adopted by the U.S. 1st Infantry Division. And Rags stayed with the troops even as they marched into hell that were the frontline trenches. Rags had originally been taught to deliver messages, but due to his intense sense of hearing, soon learned to forewarn soldiers of incoming artillery shells by tossing himself onto his side, which is what Max does every time I try to pet him. He's like, you're an oncoming (laughs) artillery shell. I am. (laughs) I'm the bomb. Uh, So Rags also developed a knack for finding injured soldiers amongst the battlefield dead. Yep, as a jack-of-all-trades, Rags additionally served as a casualty dog. This scruffy 24-pound terrier would bring back a piece of a uniform to alert medics and soldiers that an American soldier was wounded and in need of rescue. This blows my mind because a lot of these dogs are trained by the Red Cross, and this is just a little terrier who's like, I'm here. Let's do this. Let's fuck some shit up. I feel like terriers have that personality, though, where they're like, let's go. Let's break some things. I'm going to burn. Like I put in the beginning, like they were used a lot in World War One. Yeah. To clean the trenches of rats. And it would take only a matter of like hours to just completely destroy an infestation of rats because they were so good at their job. Kelly, yeah. I know you have a couple of terrier neighbors. Do you look at them with a little more respect or do well, they still annoy the hell out of you? <laughs> I, I, okay, first of all, we live in Minnesota. I don't understand why you would put a dog door in anyways. But putting a dog door in when you have dogs that just stand out on your deck and bark all day is not responsible. <laughs> anyways. So Rags eventually would go on to take too many wounds himself. He would be gassed, shelled, and partially blinded, and would have to retire from the front lines. 
He recovered, though, and was taken to America and after the war was adopted by a military family. He lived to be 20 and was buried at Aspen Hill Memorial Park in Silver Springs, Maryland, with full military honors and much fanfare. Oh, my God. I love that so much. I love his name was Rags. Like well, he was a street dog from Paris, so they probably were just like, sure. <laughs> you look Rags. like shit. We're gonna call you Rags. <laughs> I'm a twenty-four pound little terrier. That's probably why no that's probably why he didn't get caught by anyone. No one could find him. I that just blows my mind. Like all those other dogs are trained and he's like, ah, figure it out. Right. Yeah. He just picked it up. They're smart. So Max, he's kind of new to the house and we're trying to teach him to sit and do some of the other commands. And he's watching our other dogs who are really used to, yeah. you know, sitting and lying down and all that. And he's copying them. Like he's picking it up so quickly because he's watching what they do. And he's being like, oh, snap, they're getting treats. I'm going to I'm going to copy them. And maybe I'll. Oh, crap. I'm getting treats. This is awesome. Right. That's what I was going to say. Is I was like, I bet, you know, yeah, I bet he took cues from the other military dogs. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about it at the end of mine, but yeah, dogs are able to perceive any kind of gesture, even down to your eye movements of humans, and no other animal on the planet can do that. Even our closest relatives, like you know, chimpanzees and stuff, they can't read humans the way dogs can. That is wild. Dogs are truly otherworldly. Also, I love Marissa because she wrote, "Emily goes to love on the puppy." Here comes the boom. So I read that and then for some reason all I can think of is I'm like, I wonder how many times of that dog throwing itself on its side did it take them to realize what he was doing? <laughs> you can you imagine him being like, God damn it, guys, figure this out. Right, <laughs> They're like, all just going, oh, come on. Try to save your life here. Pay attention. They're I all just cooing you. over him, like, oh, Rags is being cute. Boom. <laughs> Yeah, really, oh, yeah, right. Wow. That was incredible. Oh, my little heart is just I, oh, I love it so much. And I love the history of animals in like wartime because a lot of times they do. They offer comfort. And I imagine if you're in like the worst war ever and you have an animal by you, it would make it somewhat so just like even yeah. the tiniest bit better. If anything yeah. can bring anybody just the slightest bit of comfort. Well, mine's not as wholesome. (laughs) That's fine. Not everything can be wholesome. I know. Mine's a little bit more sciencey, but it's pretty cool. Since we learned about the domestication of cats a few weeks back, I decided I need to know about dogs. I was honestly not prepared for how incredibly fascinating this was. This topic is also very exciting because some of the newest information actually came out in January of this year, 2021. So this is very super new. We are on the cutting edge right now. Right? So buckle up, cuddle your pupper, and prepare to geek the fuck out with me. Yay. Oh, jeez. I look up and there's there's a key. He's the one who his ears never fully, like, became straight, so one of his ears is always flopped. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I love that there's so many dogs right now. I started picking up my youngest dog, but then my oldest dog looks sad. So I picked her up instead. And now my youngest dog is looking at me all offended. She's like, Mom. (laughs) Mom. All right. So it turns out that researchers have identified the origins of cattle, horses, pigs, sheep, camels, ducks, chickens, cats, and goats. But, and this brings me to why I'm considering this my weird segment, is because the origins of domesticated dogs has been very fuzzy. 
And I find it weird because dogs are our oldest companion. They're the first domesticated animal. And they're the most varied, numerous, and widely distributed domestic animal worldwide. And yet, we don't know much about them. We're like, we don't know how they became domesticated. They just <laughs> It just happens. Someone just cuddled a wolf into submission. And the wolf was like, <laughs> I, could, I could get used to this. I dig this. And if, that was it. If reincarnation is real, then my ancient self was like, let me love you. <laughs> Let's pour one out to all the people who got mauled trying to domesticate wolves. <laughs> Cheers. Oh, I totally would have been that person. Yeah, I So the general consensus is that they appeared at least fourteen to 15,000 years ago with mobile bands of human hunter-gatherers, and this would have been about 5,000 years before humans domesticated crops and farm animals. So this is a really long time in history before humans were settling down. So fascinating. The earliest confirmed domestic dog anywhere so far has been from a burial site in Germany called von Oberkassel. My German sucks, I'm sorry. Which has joint human and dog intermits dated 14,000 years ago. And there's various examples throughout the world of dogs getting human-like burials, which means that they're very important. You're not going to give an animal ceremonial rights if they don't mean something to you. Well, and especially, like, I know people would sometimes be buried with horses. You know, it's like if you're a warrior and that's a status thing. But, like, a utilitarian animal, you're not going to be buried with a cow, or yeah. a sheep like there's obviously some kind of either a status symbol or an emotional connection to that mm-hmm. absolutely the earliest confirmed domesticated dog in china was found in the early neolithic so 7000 to 5800 bce at the jihu site in Henan province so these go really back <laughs> Evidence for coexistence of dogs and humans, but not necessarily domestication, comes from the upper Paleolithic sites in Europe. These hold evidence for dog interaction with humans that include the, Lord help me, okay, the Goyette Cave in Belgium, the Chauvet Cave in France, the Primosti in Czech Republic, European Mesolithic sites like Skateholm, which is 5,250 BCE, in Sweden, have dog burials, proving the value of free beasts in all the hunter-gatherer settlements. And there's even some in the U.S. So Danger Cave in Utah is currently the earliest case of dog burial in the Americas at 11,000 years ago. Utah. <laughs> oh. Blew my mind. Right? Like, all right, Utah. See you. <laughs> And it was likely a descendant of Asian dogs. Continued interbreeding with wolves, a characteristic found throughout the history of dogs everywhere, has apparently resulted in a hybrid black wolf found in the Americas. Black fur coloration is a dog characteristic, but not originally found in wolves. And then last episode, we talked about the Sholo dog and that that dog came over the Bering Strait, like with the people. So it's just, we're talking deep history here. Very, very, very long time ago. So we're going to start with the history of studying dogs. We're going to work our way to like what we think today. Yay, science. Science and brains and stuff. Love it. I think my husband's convinced I hate science because I hate math. And I'm like, there's some science that's not all math. I like that one. Growing up, I loved science, especially like weather and dinosaurs, biology. Like there are a lot of sciences I was super into as a kid. I've always been shit at math, though. Mm -hmm. I hate math. I hate it so much. 
And I was a little disappointed on how much math goes into science. I was like, damn it. No, (laughs) keep them separate. (laughs) But, you know, like science, you can be interested in science and hate math. It's possible. I'm like number dyslexic. So I'm just miserable. I hate it. Mm -hmm. Do not like. Thank God. for. I have a learning disability that makes math a nightmare. (laughs) Figure that one out my junior year of high school, which was just in time to do absolutely nothing about it. (laughs) Right? Like too far in to actually like matter. Yeah. For me to like learn any coping skills or anything. Oh, I didn't learn that I was dyslexic till college. And I'm like, oh, no wonder I don't get anything because every foundation of my education is built on. I didn't know what I was doing. Great. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's fun. All right. So we begin with the study of patterns and diversity called systematics. It's the subdivision of evolutionary biology, which I fucking love evolution. Evolutionary psychology was probably the coolest class I ever took in my entire life. That sounds amazing. It was so much fun. Even down to like, why do you kiss people? You know, like the evolutionary. Why do we? It's so weird, right? It is. But there's. But I love it. There's things of like pheromones (laughs) and even just like saliva and taste and stuff is like a way of showing attraction. And then, you know, women like our cycles were more attractive at certain parts of our cycles. Like it's so what like your face becomes slightly more symmetrical when you're ovulating, which makes you more attractive. It's. And, like, women will be more attracted to men that are wealthy and can give support most of their cycle. But when they're ovulating, they want the big, strong men. It's, like, evolutionary stuff is wild. And then all of it makes no sense now because we don't need any of that to survive. So now it's just messed no, up. It's just like, now, now we're all just, like, a bunch of fucking weirdos. <laughs> yeah. Are you ovulating because you look great? <laughs> <laughs> I've also talked, it talked about like anxiety and like ADHD and stuff. And so like early humans, if your brain was going that fast and you were scared of things, you survived. And that's why your type of genetics survived is because you were able to think fast and anticipate danger. And now we're still fucking nervous wrecks. Right. (laughs) I need medication. (laughs) Like, you know, me would have been doing great. I don't know. If my ancient ancestors knew that not getting eaten by a tiger would turn me into a basket case, I think they would have just got eaten by the tiger. <laughs> if they knew what we were If only they knew, they knew what, what they'd done. Yay, evolution. So <laughs> systematic researchers were earlier called naturalists and taxonomists. They sorted species genealogical relationships and estimated the points at which populations diverged from one another. Usually they relied on observations like physical traits, so like their teeth, skulls, and sometimes fossils. But then we got that sweet, sweet DNA and added genome-wide comparison to the mix. And that's why we're starting to finally unlock the secrets. It's so cool. DNA! And also, it's super fascinating. If you haven't listened to the cat episode, cast part one, we talk about DNA tracing in cats, which also show that cats were domesticated like 11,000 years ago, way before we thought, because I always thought like, oh, yeah, Egypt, like a little bit before that. Nope. (laughs) Way before that. So it's just so cool that our entire understanding of history is now being rewritten because we can read DNA. Geeking out. Canis lupus familiaris exhibits the most variability in shape, size, behavior, and temperament of any other mammal species living on Earth. About 1 billion dogs, a population larger than any other domesticated subspecies, roams the world. 
Canine fossils, some dating as long ago as 36,000 years, has been found on every single continent except Antarctica. So Jeez. far. So far. <laughs> it's yes. because we don't want to dig up there. It's so cold. There's like 80 billion dog bones under that ice. <laughs> the big foofers were just like rolling around in the snow, having the best time. We just are not brave enough to find them. Right. Well, what's wild is that because of global warming and a lot of ice caps and shit are melting, like they found that dog in, was it Siberia that still had its fur? Like it was almost completely intact because it f- the permafrost is falling out. So they had yeah. a perfect specimen. It still had like its tongue and stuff. Like it's wild. I don't know if I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's if you Google it, like full thing of hair, it's wild because they just found it in a block of ice that was melting. So there's no Google, telling what we'll find. I'm going to Google ancient dead dog with tongue and we'll see what happens. New hair. I bet the hair will show up okay. first. <laughs> <laughs> we also need to take in consideration that an extreme variation can occur in as little as one generation. So it's like evolution wow. on speed. So it's pretty understandable why classifying domestic dogs has been such a bitch. And that's not even taking into account that this family also includes wolves, jackals, foxes, and then dogs. Literally everything is against you trying to figure out dogs. You're so confusing. Why? <laughs> you I know, so right? A lot of people have tried to crack this canine code in the 4th century BCE theories of the... De- <laughs> Spelt that wrong. The descent, not decent. <laughs> oh, I'm smart. So, in the 4th century BCE, theories of the descent of animals were mostly philosophical approaches to relate organic life to the history of time. So, philosophers wanted to know how organic life forms were related, but not where they came from. They didn't care. Greek philosopher Aristotle, ever heard of him, endorsed the idea that natural beings were always here and always would be. So, can you imagine how much his brain would explode if he heard about extinction? (laughs) (laughs) one word dinosaurs (laughs) what if i told you that that bird flying above our heads used to weigh two tons walk on two legs and eat giant animals and then they burn me for being a witch or something yes absolutely so he commented on the dog's origin not in the respect to the animal's continuous chronological past but rather in terms of breed creation in his view the dog that nature created was bred to a fox to make a small dog and then a bear to make a big dog. Can you imagine trying to get a bear and a dog to fuck each other? (laughs) (laughs) I don't I don't want to imagine that. Do you like candles? Like what what gets them into each other? How does that work? Music. It's all music. Who mounts who? (laughs) It's so funny. Smaller the smaller has to be the male, otherwise birthing would not go well. Oh, yeah. Yikes. The big part of this is that he was one of the first people to think, like, well, breeds are created by humans. So he was kind of onto something there because humans did breed different kinds of dogs. But also, in his view, dogs always existed. Early on, people are like, evolution, who's she? We don't know her. As time went on, the earliest naturalists came to understand that species were related in more complicated ways, and then they tried to classify them. The theological context emerged, stating that a specific act of omnipotent creator transformed all living things whole and complete. So there's no evolution to see here either. Now we got God involved. (laughs) Whoa. What a cop out. (laughs) 
the revolutionary notion that every animal might not be a singular divine creation didn't actually materialize until the late Middle Ages. And it was a contradiction that had to be explored hypothetically to avoid conflict with any religious doctrine. At this point, you're trying to science, but you can't science because science might aggravate your God. So you got to just back away slowly. <laughs> 16th century English cleric Edward Topsell was the author of the history of four-footed beasts, <laughs> was really into fire and brimstone religion. So that's fun. He seems like a great guy to hang out super with. fun at parties yes ironically and- he gets really upbeat when he gets drunk it's super weird <laughs> <laughs> and he based a lot of his categories on morality i guess it's not a huge stretch if you think about the point that a wolf is like super vicious and mean and then a dog is so cute and cuddly so good and evil and all that shit very extremes right like there's no gray area in that kind of what was that 16th century <laughs> religion yikes okay 18th century, France leading naturalist and the father of paleontology, Georges Cuvier, I think, introduced a new way of looking at life and death. Although he was firmly in the camp of divine creationalism, he theorized that animals would eventually become extinct. We're starting to get somewhere. I was going to say, those are facts. Yeah. Also, I, I didn't realize that the origin of dogs and their domestication involved so much Jesus. Like, right? It's so theological. <laughs> like, why? So at this point, you can tell that they're really close to figuring out evolution, but it, they didn't want to. So it was making it very difficult to get anywhere because they're just right. like, but Jesus. We can't, because All Jesus. This, but Jesus. <laughs> We can't do that because Jesus. Sorry, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus never lets us have any fun. <laughs> Domesticated farm livestock had derived from prey species also means that dogs are the only predator species to be domesticated. So that was messing with people's heads, too, because they're like, well, we don't understand. <laughs> like, how did this happen? It's not happening anywhere else. And and then when I thought of that, I was like, that's true, because everything else we domesticated are like dumb little chickens. and. You know, like what? chickens are sweet, but they are dumb and very much prey. Yeah. Unless a mouse gets in the coop and then they eviscerate it. Oh, yeah. That, but yeah. like on our level of food chain. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for great. sure. Chicken is delicious. I have scars from roosters. I don't know. No, I'm like, yeah, they can be mean, but <gasps> they're not going to eat us. So yeah. Like, thousands of them swarm us at once. There's a horror movie. You know how they have like the weird, like the birds be like the, the birds and crows <laughs> and chickens. Oh, yeah. Me and roosters don't get along. Like, I, even in college one time in a city, I got chased by a rooster once and I'm like, what is <laughs> happening? Have you ever heard those stories about like someone who pisses off a crow and then like 10 generations of crow make it their personal mission to wreck this person's life? That happened to my mom's What dog. did you do to a rooster? Did you like yeah. kick one when you were a kid? Like my mom's dog like chased a crow and like scared it. And then now every time he goes outside, there's like 50 of them in the trees he's above like, like clawing at him. <laughs> and now he's afraid to go outside. It oh. is my dream to like become favorable for crows. Oh, yeah. We have a ton of them where we live. Uh, to the point where, like, they swarm downtown, and so the city tries to do stuff to deter them. I'm like, no, let them feast. And there's actually a house in my neighborhood. This lady has a bunch of bird feeders in her front yard, and the yard is literally always swarmed with crows 
and sometimes some ducks. But I'm like, so she's a witch. That's how you tell where the witch is in your neighborhood. There's like a billion crows. I'm like, but here's the thing. She's going to be in trouble. Someone's going to try to shortchange her or they're going to bump into her and not apologize. And then the crows will come. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, and if they like you, they bring you shiny stuff. Yeah. I need that in my life. She's just got like a box full of diamonds that crows have given her. I need to befriend some crows. I want to be be a crow lady real bad. Oh, me too. Be a murder. They did find this one quote from just a random person in a document. And it said, quote, how could such a noble animal as the dog be derived from the likes of the wolf? If evolution were true of dogs and wolves, wouldn't every beast choose to live the noble life? Some might just want to eat your face, though. And that's a choice. That is true. And again, it must have been super frustrating to like crack this because you traveled the world, a cat looks like a cat, but not all dogs look the same at all. Like even my dogs are so wildly different. They don't have the same head shape. They don't have the same leg shape. Their fur is different. It's very difficult and confusing. It is. (laughs) I'll give them the old ancient people a little slack here. It is very confusing. And the lack of understanding of the complexity of canine morphology made it difficult to unravel relationships among the ever-increasing numbers of dogs and dog-like animals being discovered, especially because now they're exploring and going to new countries. I mean, like, well, shit, there's another one, and it's even more different. BT-dubs, morphology is the form of living organisms and the relationship between their structures, which, yes, all the structures of all dogs are so different. You know, compare a pit bull to a pug. It's wild to think they're related. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like, how do you, how do you describe what a dog looks like mm-hmm. without it, without you breaking it down to such basic characteristics where it's a cat now, like yeah. or any other four legged animal. Exactly. And then they also, as they're exploring new places, you know, I mentioned that last episode, we had the Sholo dogs that came over on the Bering Strait. And so when they're coming back to America, they're realizing that these breeds that were introduced by European explorers or even before that were kind of returning to a feral state as civilizations collapsed. So like the Shola dogs, the Aztec civilization completely was demolished by explorers. And a lot of those dogs went back into the jungles of Mexico and became slightly feral. And then at, as time went on, they started interbreeding with other dogs and wolves yep. and it became this like semi-feral free-ranging canine. So it's even more confusing because we're like, well, we don't know where to even start with this. I love all the confusions because dogs will just like fuck anything. Yeah. yeah. To transform <laughs> into all these different shapes and styles. Like, yeah. hey, I'm little, but I will do that wolf. I will yeah. do that bear right here, right now. Let's <laughs> do this. <laughs> like they just go and they're like, I got I can figure this out. I know where I- to put my parts. <laughs> Just like, don't threaten me with a good sign. Yeah. Show me that bear. <laughs> God, I love dogs. <laughs> and there was also a misunderstanding beca- between the differences between a wild, tame, domestic, and feral dog. Because there's a very large spectrum. Yeah. Basically, this is just the history of how everybody got dogs wrong. <laughs> so let's keep going. So the father of modern taxonomy, Carl Linus assigned dogs both wild and domestic to groups based on their anatomy so by muzzle jaw ear shape tail carriage so dogs tails curve when they're relaxed but a wolf doesn't also their hair texture limb length and behavior these are all criteria that we still use today 
which all those things are completely different in both my dogs. So Linus had a contemporary named Georges-Luc Leclerc's Comte de Buffon. Something? I don't <laughs> know. French. I like it. And uh, he referred to him as always eloquent, often incorrect. So Is that fun. where we get the word buffoon from? Oh, Did this guy I coin that because he was just such an idiot? <laughs> Maybe it's buffon. I don't know. French is hard. <laughs> French is hard. French is very hard. It's a beautiful He's, language that none of us can oh, speak. Absolutely. I tried. I took a semester and I don't did not retain any of that. The hillbilly made it so hard. So this guy suspected that changes in canine morphology were influenced by environmental pressures like climate, but his colleagues didn't consider this to be within an evolutionary context. So he's still, he's kind of getting into it too. Like we're so close. So dividing dogs into categories based on skull shape was Cuvier's idea. And although his forward thinking approach to paleontology and the history of organisms would seem to make him an advocate for evolution, he, did, he was not. He still was like, I'm there. I'm basically saying it, but I'm still to believe in it. But God. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like flat earthers. Like I've seen pictures from space still flat I don't, care. I don't know i don't didn't know. say it wasn't a flat circle <laughs> That's all round I... and flat so kubi's interest after all was in species demise not its origin so he didn't really get very far with that but he did influence a dude named charles darwin so there's that Ooh, a name i know <laughs> yeah we know this guy so darwin believed that the dog had multiple origins you had wolves jackals and at least one in south america he supported the latter by re referencing his observations of dogs in patagonia who swam underwater and then an unusual dog he had seen in central america which i'm assuming is the sholo dog because that's a very unusual dog in central america i'm a big fan of that dog i'm convinced mine is half him I don't know how one would end up in Arkansas, but it's the Mexican hairless. I keep saying Shello, but yeah, the Mexican hairless. I mean, hairless. that's kind of what he looks like is the Mexican hairless. Yeah. I need a DNA test him stat, but they're so expensive. Yeah, they are. <laughs> I can't get myself to do it. Oh, is that like the dog from Coco? Yeah, Dante. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. he's like a giant hairless wrinkly chi. Darwin advanced the idea of multi-regional domestication and he also thought these small populations of quote-unquote inferior native dogs were eventually yeah. ousted by the migration of robust dogs introduced by Europeans. So that's another one of those like, things. Like, it's colonialism like was good. Racism. Yeah. <laughs> very racist. Is that oh dog God. imperialism? Like yes. Coming to America. Oh, my God. I'm so glad it's you picked dog. up that, too, because that's all I saw when I read that. I was like, oh, damn, he racist. <laughs> okay. Not even dog history is safe from this bullshit. <laughs> so true. Thought oh, we were damn. safe. You guys just need to erase all history. Oh, history is a son of a bitch. The analogy kind of <laughs> sucks, but it did kind of demonstrate the idea of survival of the fittest, and that's where he kind of went with the dogs. Anywho, the fundamental theory of origin is attributed to Darwin and other taxonomists, taxonomists previously proposed similar ideas and connections, including Jean-Baptiste Lamarck and Alfred Russell Wallace. Unlike Lamarck and Wallace, however, Darwin suggested the evolutionary process occurred through natural selections. We've all heard of that. Yeah. But even though dogs helped explain natural selection, they still had no idea where the fuck they came from at this point. Like... It was the key to unlock evolution, but people are like, we still don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's fine. 
And then once science could start testing at the molecular level, that's when they began to challenge all these historical theories. So as early as 1970, research papers were published suggesting that dogs may have been derived from several different gray wolf populations and that canine domestication may have happened much earlier than the fossils records about 15,000 years ago. And then by the 90s, geneticists worldwide were working together to build a comprehensive map that would chart the evolutionary journey of domesticated dogs. Which is awesome. I ugh, I love it. It's crazy but- that they can do that. Like, that's mm-hmm. magic. In the 90s, too. Like, technology yeah. was moving fast, but it was still pretty slow. <laughs> like, dial-up. Computers were enormous. But right. the fact that they were already working on this just blows my mind. But, like, the path was not very smooth. Scientists didn't play well together. And they all had different opinions. And they were very set in their opinion on how things evolved. And they criticized each other's research. And they kind of undermined the collaboration process. Shocking. That's a bummer. I hate when, like, egos get in the way of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, it, when you listen to a true crime podcast, you listen, you see it in law enforcement. You see it in science. You see it in everything where it's yeah. just a bunch of people like having a giant pissing contest it's like no here's the thing we're doing something greater than ourselves we're trying to figure out right. dogs <laughs> there's no room here for your bullshit exactly <laughs> we must know where they came from take we me to the mother to doggo <laughs> <laughs> the dog that started it all right and tricked um, humans into cleaning up its shit because that is a smart dog that's that is true i swear my dog holds it so for his walk we get her on the block every day i swear he just wants me to pick it up oh charlie when i take him for a walk when we first go out he poops we're good but the second i get too far away from a trash can to turn around he poops again and i'm like you're doing this on purpose you know what you're doing and you're such a little turd about it wait till you're like halfway (laughs) through so you can't go back yeah like you you just have to like carry it with you Oh, absolutely. They know what they're doing. He knows what he's doing, yes. So numerous studies argued for canine origins in places as diverse as East Asia, Mongolia, Siberia, Europe, and Africa, with timing varying from 15,000 to 135,000. That's only like a little bit of a difference. And then archaeologists who studied ancient canine burials were relegated to the sidelines and their fossil records were dismissed as old school, which really pissed them off. It would piss me off too. I mean, literally, like fossils are old school. That doesn't mean you miss them. <laughs> it's that's true. that's so that's so old. Like we don't do it. Yeah, you're right. This thing is like five thousand years old. That's old as shit. <laughs> <laughs> they're trying to find a common ground, but they're really failing because I think everybody wants to be the person that said they figured it out. Especially right. as technology is advancing, everybody's rushing to be the person that figures it out, and they're just like trampling over each other. And it ramped up in 2013 when UCLA evolutionary biologist Robert Wayne and his team published a comprehensive set of data suggesting that dogs evolved from a group of European wolves, now extinct, somewhere between 19,000 and 32,000 years ago. And then two really years... didn't narrow it down much. Yeah, before. not at all. And then just two years later, Peter Sav... Oh, Lord. Savolania? We're going to call him Sav. He was a molecular biologist and his colleagues at the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm published convincing results indicating that dogs originated in China, south of the Yangtze River. They estimated that this dog population split from wolves 33,000 years ago. So at least they don't have a range. They're just saying we got it. 
but both we're picking teams, a year. <laughs> yeah. We may but be both, wrong, but we're picking something. Yeah, like we got this. It's more convincing, right? And both teams were sequencing DNA. So it's wild that their findings are literally all over the map. But we'll get into why. So SAB's research team analyzed DNA samples from living global dog and wolf populations and then tracked the DNA backwards to try to figure things out. And the general rule is that older a population of animals, the more diversity it has in its genome, which is the hallmark of ancient origin. So whether these animals represented the first domesticated dogs or rather dogs who migrated to the region from elsewhere and then split off a more ancient dog population is unresolved. <laughs> they still don't know. Oh, yeah, there's no way they're going to know because yeah. it's 33,000 years. <laughs> mm-hmm. And fossil remains of the ancestral and probably extinct population of wolves that would have been indigenous to the area would seal the deal, but nobody's been able to find them yet. But like I said, with everything melting, we might find something in the next few decades, which would be kind of cool. So while Sab and his colleagues worked backwards in time, Wayne's group worked forward, tracking ancient DNA collected from prehistoric bones of wolves and wolf-like dogs, and then measuring decreasing genetic diversity. So as DNA becomes less diverse, it points to the animal transitioning from wolves to dogs. And then a dead end indicates that the lineage became extinct at that particular time. So Wayne's team sequenced ancient DNA on canid school, schools, skulls and bone fragments discovered in present day Siberia and the Czech Republic dating between 27,000 and 33,000 years ago. Which blows my mind that we have skulls from that far away too. Right. And the physical characteristics of the skulls were wider muzzles and four shortened jaws, suggesting that it was protodogs, not wolves. The canids may have looked similar to today's Arctic breeds, so like a Siberian Husky or a Greenland dog. So that's kind of interesting that they're still similar after like thousands. But they were actually probably larger, and those are big dogs to begin with, so that's kind of cool. I was going to say, a toddler can ride a Siberian Husky into battle, no problem. Yes, absolutely. It's very intimidating when a toddler riding a dog comes at you screaming. (laughs) (laughs) I'd run. I mean, it would give me pause. <laughs> no, thanks. Pause, toddler. I'd run. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> and although their findings were met with skepticism, the team said their data showed that domestic dogs originated from different wolf populations at different times in different places yep. in a series of starts and stops. And they added living dogs are more closely related to the ancient extinct wolves than they are from modern wolves. Which I mean, that would make sense. That makes sense because humans, like how we're related to say like apes and stuff, is that we share a common ancestor. We're not necessarily related to them, but we all share the same ancestor. Like at one point, we kind of like mm-hmm. just split off. Yeah, yeah. My fingers. There we go. <laughs> I'm I'm trying to you illustrate. Know, it's not working. Find, you try and find your camera, and you're like. <laughs> But in a little twist, Wayne's findings reignited the theory of parallel and multi-regional proto-domestication, which was the idea that Darwin kicked off. That's how I would imagine it would be. Like, you see it with a lot of other species, like, yeah, particularly with Darwin, you know, that he talks about how, yeah, different regions, things develop differently. So why wouldn't the dogs do the same thing? Yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. All right, so both studies have critics. Some claim that diversity in Sab's ancient dog population is a result of a mixture of European dogs as people traverse the Silk Road. And those who criticized Wayne's study maintain that he has no solid proof that ancient bones he's studying are definitely wolf or dog. 
because they don't really know at this point. And additionally, the study is geographically biased because he excluded samples from China because he was convinced there were no ancient dogs there. So that's where he lost me. Like, you can't just say, like, I don't believe it. So I'm not going to look at it. I mean, yeah, that's that's super biased right there. Like, yeah, yeah, your research may be semi-sound, but if Mm -hmm. you're ignoring an entire population, it's not that great. Yeah, like, why wouldn't dogs develop there? Yeah. That's where humans kind of came, like. Yeah, and cats domesticated cats came from asia so yeah it makes it makes sense but although the two studies go two different directions they might both be right in some aspects it's possible that dogs were domesticated multiple times in different regions and that most lineages died out when humans were faced with overwhelming challenges like climate change so their findings aren't mutually exclusive either just because we can't prove it doesn't mean it's not right and one reason for the disparities, according to Oxford's evolutionary biologist, Gregor Larson, who was part of a team that successfully mapped the origin of the pig. So that's a fun thing to have on your resume. Right. He says is that scientists studying the dog are not including enough ancient DNA in their studies. So they're using like a small sample size and they could do more. So he with a colleague, Keith Dobney, who was an archaeology at the University of Aberdeen, had the idea of bringing together all the evidence ever collected ever to find ancient specimens from museums and then apply state-of-the-art technology to create a database that was bigger than anything that anybody's ever seen before. And at this point, all they had to do is convince everybody to work together. <laughs> I feel like that's the most reasonable thing, though. Like, Yeah, like everybody, like, I have, you know, a skull or I have a like, beamer. Like, everybody be easy because scientists have egos bigger than doctors but oh yeah i'm imagining they brought in, like a preschool teacher who was like okay everyone today we're gonna talk about teamwork what's gonna work teamwork say it with me everyone all together sharing and teamwork and yeah sharing they have, like caring. a week-long class for preschoolers for these scientists And it had to have worked because somehow he was able to sell the idea of collaborating and cooperating, which might have been because this is like 2013 and everybody saw what happened in the 90s and nobody could get anything done. So I'm sure everybody's like, okay, fine. So he got more than 50 influential canine evolutionary scientists to join the project, including archaeologists, paleobiologists, zoo archaeologists, and paleogeologists, and a whole lot more. So a lot of Different people from different fields actually agreeing to listen to each other, which is more incredible than finding out the answer, I guess. (laughs) So these scientists compared genetic data from existing archaeological evidence. And this study went on for about 2013, and it looks like it ended around 2018, and found that man's best friend may have emerged independently from two separate, possibly now extinct wolf populations that lived on opposite sides of the Eurasian continent. This means that dogs may have been domesticated not once, as widely believed, but twice. Which I believe pigs also were domesticated twice, they proved. I There's one so. other animal that's twice. Everybody else was once. You um, know what I also just realized? This whole story is the movie Breakfast Club. It's all a bunch of different people getting forced <laughs> in a room together, and all they have to do is write an essay, and then they like come together and resolve their differences and they write like a they and then they find the origin of dogs at the end and they write like a really <laughs> bitchy note to watch? the principal <laughs> i mean that checks out now that you've put it that way it does make a lot of sense 
You two are crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now we just need to figure out which scientist was Ali Sheedy because she was my favorite. <laughs> they reconstructed the evolutionary history of dogs by first sequencing the genome at Trinity College in Dublin, which is my favorite place in the world. Have you seen that library? Oh, oh my Lord. So it was a 4,800-year-old medium-sized dog that was excavated at the Neolithic Pasic tomb of Newgrange, Ireland. The team, including French researchers based in Lyon at the National Museum of Natural History in Paris, also obtained mitochondrial DNA from 59 ancient dogs living between 14,000 and 3,000 years ago. And then they compared them to the genetic signatures of more than 2,500 previously studied modern dogs. The results of their analysis demonstrate a genetic separation between modern dog populations currently living in East Asian and Europe. But curiously, this population split seems to have taken place after the earliest archaeological evidence of dogs in Europe. The new genetic evidence also shows a population turnover in Europe that appears to have mostly replaced the earliest domesticated dog population there, which supports the evidence that there was later arrivals of dogs from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. It's all very confusing. And then lastly, a review of the archaeological record shows that early dogs appear in both the East and the West more than 12,000 years ago, but in Central Asia, no earlier than 8,000 years ago. So they started on like the ends and moved inward. Yeah. So like a giant furry hug. (laughs) Yeah. And combine these new findings suggest that dogs were first domesticated from geographically separated wolf populations on opposite sides of the continent. At some point after their domestication, the eastern dogs dispersed with migrating humans into Europe, where they mixed with mostly replaced the earliest European dogs. Most dogs today are a mixture of both eastern and western dogs. And one reason why genetic studies have been difficult to interpret, Larson said, quote, animal domestication is a rare thing. And a lot of evidence is required to overturn the assumption that it happened just once in a species. Our ancient DNA evidence combined with archaeological records suggests that we need to reconsider the number of times dogs were domesticated independently. Maybe the reason there hasn't been a consensus about where dogs were domesticated is because everyone is a little bit right. So I found that interesting. Instead of being like, everybody's wrong. He's like, no, I think we're all right. We just haven't cracked it completely. Right. And then, we all have our we all have our patches of the quilt, and we haven't found the thread to like piece it all yeah. together. Yeah, but I like his mentality. Like, I think very we got positive. The, yeah, and then Dr. France France is also an author on this study. He said, "Quote: Reconstructing the past from modern DNA is a bit like looking into a history book. You never know whether crucial parts have been erased. Ancient DNA, on the other hand, is like a time machine, and it allows us to observe the past directly." I like that. And that's absolutely accurate, too. The DNA doesn't lie. Maybe it doesn't tell the whole picture, but. Yeah. And it's, you know, not necessarily what it looks like because we were talking about like one generation could have a massive evolution like spike. So it's confusing. But if they can just figure out the patterns, they'll eventually get there. And there's a lot of questions that remain. There were no ancient American dogs included in this story like study so you know again yeah and then there was a france et al he was a writer on this one but he was also a writer on another study he suggests that the two ancestor species were descended from the same initial wolf population that are now extinct so he's he's like i think you're on to but i don't think it's you know two different wolves i think it's the same wolf and then (laughs) other scholars have 
investigated and found evidence to support migration events across Central Asia, but not for a complete replacement. So he's just like, I don't think they all dispersed and left. And he thinks that they just kind of sprinkled in and out. So again, we don't know. (laughs) But as of January of this year, we may have known the how. So we don't know when yet, but we might know the how we started to domesticate. So according to the scientific journal, the humanity's bond with dogs began in northern Eurasia between 14,000 and 29,000 years ago when much of the earth was still covered in ice, i.e. the ice age. <laughs> I can't help but laugh like when you give such a wide range. I know, right? I, but when that's... you're talking that far back, that's totally appropriate, you know? It's still funny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, for sure. So plants were super scarce because it was the ice age and prey was very lean because they were also not able to eat. So edible plants could have been stored in the winter as a source of carbohydrates, but supplies would have waned as the big freezes wore on. They were lacking a lot of food, and our hunter-gatherer ancestors could only get about 45% of their calories they needed to survive from eating lean meat, since too much can cause protein poisoning. Yeah, (laughs) so human livers are not adapted to eating only protein, apparently, and that was all they were getting because the lean meat didn't have any fat. I feel like someone needs to tell people on the keto diet. Right. <laughs> Wait, so you mean my T-Rex diet will kill me? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, I've, I've never heard of protein. I was today years old when I learned about protein poisoning. So they figured out that they needed to add more fat to their diet. So they were trying to eat as much marrow and grease to supplement their diets as well because they were just not, they're having a bad time. Right. But to get enough fat, because all the animals were starving too, they had to overkill. So they were eating way more meat. They had more meat than they could eat. Ice Age hunters fed the excess meat to wolves, according to Maria Lattinen, who was the lead author of this new study and an archaeologist with the Finnish Food Authority. She's like a food archaeologist. Freaking badass. She says, quote, the wolf and the human can form a partnership without competition in a cold climate. This would easily promote domestication. So the descendants of the leftover eating wolves eventually became the first domesticated dogs, according to her study. There was plenty of benefits to to domesticated dogs. They can pull sleds, protect livestock, and protect you from other predators. But these are things they didn't know about yet. (laughs) None of these became apparent until... You know, the dogs were already domesticated for a really, yeah. really, really long time. The question was especially perplexing given that ancient humans and northern wolves have occupied the same area for like tens of thousands of years and they had the same prey like caribou, rabbits, and deer. It struck many researchers unlikely that two species would have willingly chosen to cooperate given that they were competing for food sources in the Ice Age. Here's another quote Humans have a tendency to try to eliminate their competitors. It never has been explained before why humans join forces with their competitor. And this is an understatement. So when humans arrived in Europe about 43,000 years ago, they pretty much wiped out every large carnivore that existed, including the saber-toothed cats and the hyenas. They had giant hyenas. So the fossil record doesn't reveal whether these large carnivores starved to death because modern humans took all their food or if they picked them off on purpose because they were threats. But either way, Ice Age bestiary is extinct because people suck. There's also a hunting hypothesis that humans use wolves to hunt, but it doesn't hold up either. Humans were already successful hunters before this, so why would they need them? And wolves eat a lot of meat, so why would they take in something that's going to eat all your food source? 
So that was I don't think one. we're giving enough credit for how cute canines are. <laughs> I true. really I really think that's a missing link here. Like, <laughs> well, this dog's already eating my leftover meat and it's kind of letting me pet it and it's soft and I'm into that and look at the little face. I think that's it. People don't want to give credit to the cuteness factor. Well, that was there to the next one because the next theory is the one where they just captured puppies and like Stockholm them until they <laughs> domesticated. <laughs> That's so cute and so sad. I I almost wonder if the domestication was more accidental, you know, and maybe the humans weren't necessarily purposely sharing their meat, but, Mm -hmm. but more like they were overkilling to get the fat they needed and then just leaving the carcasses behind. And then the wolves were just like, well, we're starving. Let's just follow the dead animals. And, And that's similar to the next hypothesis is that wolves were opportunistic scavengers that were attracted to the food waste that humans left behind. Problem with that thinking, according to this scientist, is that Ice Age humans didn't settle in one place long enough to leave consistent scraps for them to be attracted to. So that was her theory. And although an interesting fact about the theory is that it implies dogs domesticated themselves. So there is a theory that dogs were like, well, they got food. And when we're assholes, they don't give it to us. But when we're nice, they give it to us and they don't kill us. So it was like... A theory that dogs were like, we'll we'll figure this out. Like we're I mean, gonna like, just be nice. Modern dogs, one hundred percent. You can oh, see, you can see them working man. through issues like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so it's more plausible that our ancestors simply caught more prey than they could safely consume and chose to satiate their fellow predators rather than kill them off. That led to four-legged predators to stick closer and closer to people over time until they evolved into dogs. A process that probably took a really long time and took place about 12,000 years ago. And her research suggests that puts the range about where the previous one was at when they domesticated. So yeah. this one fits in with theirs. And friendliness caused strange things to happen to wolves. They started to look different. They got like floppy ears and different yeah, they, they developed a higher cuteness factor. <laughs> yeah. And then, like I mentioned in your story, they also began to read people. They were able to read gestures, body language. You can even eye direction. Like, if I dart my eyes, my dogs were like, what are you looking at? You know, right. like, they pick up on our gestures. But I'm going to get in more to that next week. But I just think it's interesting, the idea that humans are like, we can't eat all this food. Maybe we'll just give it to these things. Maybe it was like, if I feed you, you're not going to kill me because uh, you're full. And true. also, I'm giving you food. I'm a I'm a food source. Yeah. But yeah. not in the eat my face kind of way. Yeah, because like, let's say the wolves are stalking the humans. And then maybe the humans are like, oh, if we give them our this extra meat we're not eating anyways, they won't eat us. Mm-hmm. That's true. Smart, Emily. Well, yeah. we've, seen, we've seen animals that I would consider more wild not necessarily become domesticated, but form these really interesting relationships with humans. Like if you look at handlers at a zoo who know all the alligators' personalities and their favorite treats and their behaviors and, you know, they they, ha- they build a relationship. And I'm like, if you told me an alligator could be a pet, I'd say you were full of shit. But we've seen these capabilities to form relationships with animals that would otherwise totally eat our faces off. Oh, thousand percent lions tiger i mean they're just giant kittens there's oh my my. (laughs) when i went to the houston zoo they were just walking a cheetah on a leash and i was like huh (laughs) don't see that every day no 
Unless you're like super rich and fancy and then you can have a oh, cheat on like yeah. a diamond leash. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking Josephine Baker, yeah. man. <laughs> she was a she was a uh, jazz performer, uh Cheetah named Chiquita. Cheetah named Chiquita. <laughs> Uh, do you guys watch Archer? They have the awesome. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Where's Babu? Probably pissing on something I love. <laughs> I wanted to name the cat something after Archer, but then I was like, no, he's more of a sociopathic murderer. Maybe uh, your next dog. Maybe I love that. Yeah. Show so much. Name her. Um, was it Duchess? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, well, thank you guys so much for joining me. This has been so much fun. I've and loved I'm- including all the dogs. <laughs> it's been fun. There's been so many fur babies. It's funny because normally, like on our podcast, we're apologizing for the dogs making noise, and this time we're like, "Bring it on!" Yeah, yeah, it's in like, the theme. It's totally okay. I heard, I heard the cheese barking outside the door, and my boyfriend's like, "Shush!" And I'm like, "No, it's fine. It adds authenticity to this whole episode. <laughs> Let them bark and <laughs> make time. their presence known." Yes. Yeah, it was first time they're eating dinner that I'm not like, "Oh, I'm sorry." I was just like, "No, nah, it's fine." Thank you so much for having us. We always have such a fun time, yeah. and we're really excited to talk about dogs. And I think this is one of the first episodes we've ever done on any podcast where we haven't been strictly women's history it was kind of nice to like go in a different direction so oh that's cool yeah, so if you ever want us back we'll come back i mean we'll uh, come back anyway. more woofers. yeah <laughs> there's no question i want to thank my guest whining about her street again for joining me for dogs part two I was so excited to learn about the Mercy Dogs. And even as I was editing this, I was like tearing up again because it's so sweet. This was a very visual episode with our puppies. So if you would like to watch that, join Patreon. That's patreon.com slash historical AF pod. And there are so many more benefits. Not only do you get to watch us live and comment along as we go, you get merch, you get things in the mail, you get to choose stories and random words. So many, so many things. If you'd like to send in a story for the extra AF episode, that is historicalafpod at gmail.com. If you'd like to buy some merch, that is shop.spreadshirt.com slash historical AF pod. And also, if you would like merch that I hand make myself, that's on my Etsy store. And I have some new stuff coming up this week. I'm really excited about. I have some uh, Rasputin dick jokes and then one wine glass that says I like history and maybe three people. Super pumped about it. And that's Etsy.com slash shop slash Kina's Creations. And that's Creations with a K. If you'd like there to just be one website to find all this information, guess who has time to remember all this? That is historicalafpodcast.com. And you don't have to join Patreon or buy merch to help me out. You can share this podcast with friends or give me a rating on iTunes, Podchaser, etc. You know, counteract those uh, one-star reviews I got from very unhappy Trumpsters. (laughs) All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next week for Dog History Part 3 with the podcast Harlots of History. Okay, bye! Welcome to Talking Shiz. I am CJ. And I am Maddox. And our podcast is like a radio show. We have no certain topics. 
We talk about anything and everything, and our opinions don't matter. And we do have a pod page. What is our pod page where folks can find our platforms and what we're all about, Maddox? I'm glad you asked. As a matter of fact, that is podpage.com forward slash talking without a G uh, dash shiz. And that's where our it's our one-stop shop. It has everything there. It has all of our donation links. It has all of the content that we have created, our recent related reviews. And it even gives you where you can find us on different applications such as Google, uh, iHeartRadio, you name it. We're in almost in every single uh, branch of applications out there so please check it out there's even if you want to become an official shizzler we even have merchandise so definitely go there check it out and yeah it's literally the best one-stop shop absolutely and sharing is caring so make sure you guys share 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 we're on twitter and that's talking underscore shiz instagram talking underscore shiz we have facebook we got our pod page. We have different platforms, Apple Music, Spotify, what Maddox said. We are everywhere. So definitely check us out, and we definitely appreciate you guys listening. Yes, thank you guys, and we'll see you on one of our episodes.